Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders Podcast, episode number 93. My name is Christopher Luft, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we're going to be chatting with Adnan Khan, Lead Security Engineer at Praetorian. But first, a word from the sponsor of this show, Lima Charlie. My name is Maxim Lamad Brassard, and I'm the founder of Lima Charlie, the company behind the SecOps Cloud Platform. Cybersecurity tools today need to evolve from the one-size-fits-all silos into a modern tool set to adapt to the specific needs that you have. The SecOps Cloud Platform works by providing you with full access to the underlying security tools and infrastructure. Everything's on demand with no minimums, no contracts. It's an approach that's really like AWS has done in IT. We offer a full-featured free tiers, no credit cards, no contracts, nothing. Get on the platform today, deploy an EDR, start ingesting logs, build a product, start an MDR, an MSSP, whatever you can imagine. We're making security flexible so you can build what's possible. You can learn more or get started for free at limacharlie.io. Hey, Adnan, thanks for being back on the show with us. Yeah, thank you so much, Chris. Uh, thanks for uh, inviting me back on. Uh, had a great time uh, joining your podcast uh, back in May of last year, and I'm uh, excited to talk about some more interesting things uh, related to probably s- some similar topics. Yeah, and uh, for anybody who maybe missed the last episode, do you want to introduce yourself quickly and tell us what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my name is Adnan Khan. Uh, I'm uh, currently a lead security engineer at a cybersecurity company called Praetorian. And uh, this, I've done some CICD research with Praetorian, but some of this latest stuff is some research I've done on my own time, uh, really focused on GitHub-based attacks. That's really been my passion lately. And I've kind of, over the last few months, really come to understand the different intricacies of how these vulnerabilities manifest, as well as how uh, attackers can take advantage of them for some pretty scary uh, impact. Yeah, as you alluded to, you were on the show back in May of 2023 talking about some vulnerabilities you discovered in organizations' GitHub build pipelines. It sounds like that was only the tip of the iceberg, and you found some new vulnerabilities. Can you provide a brief overview of the nightmare supply chain attack you discussed in our in your recently published research article and its potential impact on companies worldwide? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so essentially, it's it's quite a bit, so you'll probably have to read the article to get a full deep dive to understand what went into it, but... A quick summary of it would be that I've identified a misconfiguration in GitHub's Actions Runner Images Repository. So if you're not familiar with GitHub Actions, GitHub has runner images that are used to run hosted builds on both, both GitHub as well as Azure DevOps. So this repository holds the source code for those images, and they tend to deploy on roughly a weekly cadence. What I found was that by exploiting misconfigured build agents that were attached to that repository, someone who could fix a small typo, like a single character typo, which is what I did, and then become a contributor and then turn around and create a pull request to obtain persistence on that build agent. So that's kind of your standard poison pipeline execution attack conducted by someone from the internet without any, you know, additional access to GitHub itself, like in terms of being having to fish a GitHub employee or anything like that. 
And from that access, an attacker actually had a very clear path to poison the source code for those runner images. And I outline exactly how I would have done it in the blog post. And that's not just it. So that's the one I've just kind of proven. Depending on how the they had it configured in the back end and how they actually did deployments, it's very likely that someone could have just modified those builds in flight. And then that image, whichever one they chose to pull into their production pool, would just end up in production. Now, I can't say that for certain because I don't, I didn't take this all the way, but that's kind of, I, I leave that up as an open question. However, poisoning the source code was was clear because of what you can see from the external perspective. Yeah, and we'll get into the details of the attack through the rest of this interview, but you also received a, a bug bounty from GitHub for responsible disclosure. Do you want to share that with our listeners to maybe inspire some some action out there? Yeah, absolutely. So it was a pretty long disclosure process, but basically in November of last year, they resolved it and confirmed it as a critical issue and res- awarded a $20,000 bug bounty. So that was a, a pretty nice uh, treat at the end of all of this. <laughs> yeah. And it, did it come in just before Christmas? Uh, I think it was November 14th is when they kind of awarded it and closed out the report. Oh, right on. Well, congratulations. You know, like I said, before we turned on the recording, uh, I was very impressed by the research and I'm really excited to talk about it. So I guess for those that may not be familiar with concepts around continuous integration and continuous deployment, can we quickly talk about why we have those and, and what a runner is in that context? Yeah. So, you know, it's a pretty uh, complicated, you know, system for, you know, someone who's not really familiar with it. But essentially, when it comes to continuous integration with GitHub Actions, there's there are runners that execute builds. Now, I touched on this earlier, but there are GitHub hosted runners, and these are ephemeral. They're spun up in Azure. They're torn down after a build finishes, and they're, they have a clean environment, and there's no way to poison builds uh, between runs. If you could just you know ru- execute on one of their runners, the next runner has no kind of knowledge of what happened before. So there's also another type called self-hosted runners, which is essentially you download and install a an agent that is published by GitHub, and that will just connect to a particular repository or an organization, and that will be able to run the same workflows that those hosted GitHub runners can run. So they'll pick up the files, they'll perform the build tasks, and do some cleanup. But the key thing here is that by default, these self-hosted runners are non-ephemeral. So essentially, I take the agent provided by GitHub, I put it on my machine, and then I have the builds that I'm pushing to GitHub run on my machine and get ready for production. Absolutely. And it's because GitHub has made the software so easy to use. In many cases, you just see people just drop it on a, a dev box. They spin up themselves. So in a, in a way, it kind of ends up being shadow IT mm-hmm. of sorts. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of these cloud companies are guilty in a thing we see in security, especially in the cloud, is everything's made to work easily because if people run into snags when they try it for the first time, they're not going to use your product. And so that usually means really poor security. And that's kind of the case here, isn't it? Absolutely. GitHub is, I mean, I, I give so much credit to GitHub. Like they've made CICD systems so easy to use. Like if you've ever had to deal with setting up Jenkins pipelines, maybe 10 years ago, like you, you know, it, it's painful and GitHub Actions is so much less painful than that. Mm-hmm. And this default configuration, part of the problem 
as you mentioned, is once you're a contributor, you can fork from a public repository and, and in that process end up with some permissions that allow you to do something else, right? Yeah, yeah. So GitHub has a couple different like tiers when it comes to repository GitHub wor- actions workflow event per, uh, like kind of associations. So you'll have like none, you'll have contributor, you'll have collaborator, you'll have member and uh, administrator, I believe. And collaborator, member, and administrator, now those you, someone has to explicitly grant you permissions. But that contributor one is where essentially it just means you've previously had some sort of code change merged in. Like it could be complex, it could be simple, but that's something that, from a security perspective, right? That's that's members of the public. It just means they have to do a little extra step to get there. Yeah, and so the problem here is that any fork pull request can make any modification to the workflow YAML files, including changing the runs on fields, which is mentioned in your article, and that gives them access to the self-hosted runner that normally does not execute workflows from public forks. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So the default setting is essentially the workflows from a pull request trigger, regardless of what where they run on, only require explicit approval if that person is a first-time contributor. And then... If they're a contributor, then by default, their workflows will just run. And you touched on this earlier, but this is for usability, it's for speed of development. If you have a repository with a lot of contributors and some maintainer needs to go and look at every single change, hit approve, and then the test run, and then it might fail. And now they got to look at everything again. So it's really, it's done for speed of development and usability. Right. And then so by changing the workflow file within their own fork and then creating a pull request, anybody can run arbitrary code on the self-hosted runner? Yes. So if if the self-hosted runner is just configured at a repository level with the with default settings, then anyone can just run code on it. And there really isn't anything to, to stop that. Barring some specific pre-job hook script that checks for external runs, you know, again, there's a lot of ways to hack together a solution that'll stop the problem. And I've, I've definitely seen that in the wild, but kind of that base case is, is exactly what you've described. Yeah. And that's probably like 96, 97% of companies are just running with default configurations. Uh, in your research, you successfully proved this out on GitHub itself and you started, you got to commit, I think it was a simple spelling error accepted. And then you, once you had that contributor status, you planned the attack in depth. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So it was, uh, I believe, a, a one-character typo, and it was merged about two days after I had submitted the pull request. And this was with a brand new account. Okay. And so the workflows they had used secrets, and by gaining persistence on the runner while it processed the build, you were able to also gain access to those secrets along with uh, getting the GitHub token as well? Yes. And this is where kind of most of the nuance comes in in, in, in the attack path. So essentially... After I obtain persistence on that runner, now I have a process that's running after my build is completed. So I'm now sitting on that runner and in order to obtain persistence, I chose to install another GitHub Actions runner. And we can probably touch more on that later. But essentially, the next time a build executed from a non-fork PR, like this is a push to a feature branch or someone something that the maintainer ran manually or something on a schedule those builds would have a GitHub token that has write access and access to secrets. Because by default, and actually this is in all cases, fork PR workflows just don't get secrets and they don't 
have a GitHub to open. It was write access. So no, you can't really do anything there until you violate that interbuild boundary, which is what I was able to do by persisting on the runner. Yeah, and I was quite fascinated how you did that. So you basically modified a linter.yaml file and, and near the bottom you had a you pulled in a script from somewhere and had it run. And as you mentioned, you you created a self-hosted runner within the self-hosted runner. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I did. So the key to this the key here for this attack to work would be there's a small period of time between like an hour or two where someone, if they looked at it, would be like something's off and they could lock things down. So I needed to kind of hide in plain sight until that next workflow ran that I needed to conduct the next phase of the demonstration. So I chose the linter because it it would it would blend it in plain sight and someone would actually have to go and look at that workflow file to see that something was amiss. And precisely, uh, had a script, curled it down from a GitHub gist, and then that basically installed another runner to another into another directory and I knew that that was going to be safe because since it's already a runner I know the IP addresses and host names that it needs to talk to are open if there are any if there are any firewall rules and that's not going to trip up any EDR or anything present on the system because again it's already running the same software mm-hmm. and anybody looking at the logs is just going to see another runner and there's there's nothing about it that would send off any alarms yeah, I mean, if someone's looking at those logs at all. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> okay, so in, after the initial stage of this attack, you essentially had a web shell on the runners. How did you then use this to exfiltrate data? Yeah, so the the way I set up a web shell was I just, it was connected to my repository and I just created another workflow that I could use to run commands on it. So once I had the web shell, I needed to wait for another scheduled job. And this is kind of why I timed my attack when I did is that there was a nightly run that used those runners. So I knew that if I got on the runner and then that scheduled build executed, I'd be able to steal the GitHub token from that build. And in in this case, the way I stole it was to take it from the git uh, config file from the checked out repository because the actions checkout reusable action places a the GitHub token in, in a base64 encoded text into that file. So if I could just read that out, then I'll have that token. And then that token will be valid for the duration of that subsequent build. Mm-hmm. And you were even able to delete the run logs for each workflow your PR triggered? Yep, absolutely. So in this case, they had a GitHub token with kind of the, the full default write access. And and I can touch on this later, but essentially by, by having all that write access, I w- am able to clean up more and I'm also able to do more in terms of lateral movement because of that lack of kind of principle of least privilege that was in, that was implemented in that case. So yes, I used that to delete the run logs. And at that point, I was like, okay, no one's going to catch this because the run logs are gone. I have a PR that's closed. You kind of have to look into the comparison to see any evidence of modifications. So at that point, I had gotten past like the riskiest part of this demonstration. Right. And then, yeah, you were free to operate with less... Uh with less guardrails or less uh, less probability of being discovered. Absolutely. Okay. Um, and in the documentation of your attack on GitHub, you, you established persistence on some of the build agents, but it was limited because you accidentally installed your C2 on the checked out repository. What, what, what happened there and what could have happened if you were yeah. able to stay on the main repository? <laughs> yeah. So in, in this case, so I had actually 
shelled multiple runners at the same time. So I had the Mac run, the runners used to build the Mac images where I didn't make that mistake, but the runners used to build the Windows and Linux images. I think I had just like an error in like the home environment variable or something in my implantation script that I pulled down and it just didn't go to the right directory and installed it in the working directory, which was the checked out repository. And as a result of that, the, the when the next build ran, the repository gets cleaned of all files that aren't from the from GitHub. So it, it cleaned up all the runner files and credentials that the runner uses. So it just basically died at that point. And it was just, a, you know, one of those operator mistakes there. I could have easily turned around and reshelled it and everything would have been fine, especially since I had that other runner where I could steal tokens from. I could have shelled it and then used that same token to just clean the log and it would have been fine. However, at this point, I had what I needed to demonstrate impact and I didn't feel a need to go and attack it again just to get a shell on something. Uh, so I, I, at that point, I just opted to move on. But you were live on the runner for five days? Correct. Yeah. So the the macOS runner, and which is, this is where I was able to prove kind of all the impact that I needed. I had the runner on runner there for five days until I I basically removed it myself. Once GitHub confirmed that yes, they've accepted the bug, triaged it, and there's they started rolling out fixes. So I killed it itself. It wasn't like they went and cleaned it up. I had I cleaned up my own uh, payload. <laughs> Okay, and I guess like to to put it into context, like one of the worst case scenario kind of outcomes that could have came out of this is that like a skilled attacker could have monitored the build pipeline until they saw a high value target and then slip arbitrary code into that code base at build time in a way that would go undetected. Yeah, so what you're describing is essentially what someone would be able to do if if they were able to backdoor the runner image. So that's someone... So think about like this would be like a solar wind style attack, right? So someone's poisoned the runner image. Now all of the hosted images used by GitHub has some malicious code running in it. Now, if you started doing something overt in every single run, some that's someone somewhere is gonna catch it, right? So if someone was a really skilled attacker, what they would need to do is modify something that always runs and have it check to see if it's running a workflow on behalf of a high value target organization. You know, this could be a, a, you know, a block crypto company. This could be a cloud service provider, someone where if they could capture seekers from them, they could conduct significant lateral movement instead of doing something on every run, setting off alarms mm-hmm. and, and then kind of losing that level of access. Yeah. And Given that almost everybody is on GitHub, the potential impact is crazy. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, this is one thing where some additional guardrails would have also had had to fail, right? Like someone would have had to slip code into the repository and hope that no one would notice it for a week until the next deployment round. Or if the deploy deployment process on the back end just involved some, say, static scanning or and then it didn't pick anything up and it made it into the production pool. So it wasn't like immediate, right? So It wasn't a free pass to all of these things, but it was the beginning of a path that could have led to these kind of things. C- correct. And from my observation and just my general kind of understanding of this repository, 
I'm pretty confident someone could have slipped a single code change in, mm-hmm. especially with how they're pulling a lot in a lot of third-party dependencies. Like they're just referencing releases by tags, so you could just fix a tag and make the commits like hard coding commit SHA, and then it's actually to a malicious commit SHA. Like it would have been there would be a lot of sneaky ways to poison the image without someone noticing for at least a few weeks. Yeah. And like you said, a skilled attacker who is experienced, who understands the human side of all of this, they could have crafted it just, just like the way you planned your attack for when these builds were running. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, g- great work, a little bit terrifying. I, you know, there's <laughs> never any end of things to be anxious about working in this industry. Um, for any companies out there that maybe have some open source projects or public repositories, do you have any advice on what actions they can do to to go audit and maybe secure themselves against attacks like this? Oh, absolutely. There, there are several steps organizations can take to protect themselves against this kind of contributor, PR, self-hosted runner attack. So first of all, it's if you have a repository and there isn't like a strict business need for requiring PR approval, PR workflows to run without approval, it's best to just set it to that more restrictive setting. So that'll make it so maintainers at least have to review the code. And then to exploit this, this would be more of a social engineering attack instead of just taking advantage of a, a misconfiguration. So that's, and that's by far the easiest setting to make, change to make. Now, there's also other restrictions that someone can make. So Self-hosted runners, when they're attached to the organization level, they can be placed into groups. And you can actually restrict runners to a a specific group and then tie that group to a specific workflow. So say you have a workflow called public runners and they can only run off of a specific tagged workflow in the main branch. And then you have another workflow that runs that that fixed workflow on say a workflow uh, on a workflow call so it'll run that reusable workflow and github has this kind of complicated way of reusing workflow files but essentially you can set it up so that the runner will only run in the context of that fixed workflow so no one can change it and if someone tries to use that runner from another workflow it won't even pick up the job so that way you can be sure that the workflow file itself is fixed and the only way someone could poison it would be to say, have the code itself do something. But then again, there's ways to add checks there. So you're basically increasing your layers of defense. Mm-hmm. So th- that's one way that GitHub allows you to, you know, make to add more restrictions. Finally, the general recommendation for self-hosted runners really is to follow Salsa guidelines, which is one r- run runner one clean runner for every build. So by having everything ephemeral, you prevent an attacker from poisoning other builds, stealing secrets from other builds, as I demonstrated in in this attack. Okay, so in the spirit of the cloud, just build things up when you need them and tear them down when you're done. Yeah, yeah. And again, it's easier said than done, right? One of the big reasons why people use self-hosted runners, and in the wild, this is very much the case, is compiling Rust packages, running something on GPUs that you need to compile that for that might take an hour, hours. So that's the whole reason they're using them. So if they went to ephemeral runners now, they have to add addition, some additional complex cache, caching system that 
where, where the compilation's cached, but there's no way to poison it, but the builds are ephemeral, and now you add layers and layers of engineering, and that just means more time and more money at the end of the day. Right. Interesting. And Adnan, you had built a, a toolkit that's available on GitHub called the GitHub Attack Toolkit, which I think is Gato for short, which is Spanish for cat. So I'm curious about that. Can you tell our listeners about that? Yeah, absolutely. So this is GitHub Attack Toolkit is a tool that I led the development of back at the beginning of 2023, along with two of my colleagues. And this was kind of a tool that we debuted at a, a ShmooCon talk that we gave at the beginning of 2023. And Yes, uh, it's named Gato, Gato for short, just cat, and then the mascot's a cat. So it's just kind of a play on words there. And it kind of flows off the tongue nicely, and you can remember it. So I think we picked a good name for it. So what this tool does, and I've added some new features to it over the last few months. And what it does is it can scan public repositories for self-hosted runners that are non-ephemeral. And the way it does this is kind of clever. So... You can't actually tell that just based on looking at a workflow file, and you can't query the API endpoints that tell you about self-hosted runners without being a repository admin. But what it does is it downloads all of the run logs from previous workflows, and it uses a combination of static analysis on the YAML files to determine, okay, is this running on, say, Ubuntu latest or Windows latest? No. If not, then okay, let's pull the workflow logs for this file and see what the runner information is. And in the run log, you'll learn if it's a self-hosted runner, if it's a repository level or an organization level runner, the group of the, of the runner and what, what labels were requested. So you can de- de- learn a lot about what the runner is without actually having any permissions to the repository. Second, there's a way to figure out if a runner is non-ephemeral using, again, another heuristic. So when the actions check out reusable actions action runs, if there are any previous files in the repository, it does something called it, it cleans it. So it cleans the repository of old files. That's actually what got me (laughs) earlier in the attack, but it'll print that out. So if you see a run log and you see cleaning the repository, you're 99.9% sure it's it's a non-ephemeral self-hosted runner, because if there's anything in the repository, that means you, you know it was from a previous build. And even if, say, they have something where the runner is ephemeral, but they're caching that directory, well, again, it's still useful to you because you can poison that, and now you can break that boundary by altering files, so it's still worth uh, looking into. So it uses that heuristic, and it's and it can scan an entire organization in a couple of minutes, so you can just run it on Microsoft, and a couple of minutes later, it'll tell you which Microsoft repositories have non-ephemeral self-hosted runners attached. Very cool. I'll most certainly link that in the show notes if anybody's curious about playing around with it. I know as part of your disclosure, there was also some other companies you reached out to, PY Torch, and uh, do you want to briefly tell me about what the knock-on effects of this were? Yeah, yeah. So after I discovered this vulnerability, I reached out to one of my colleagues, John Stowinski, and asked, hey, like, do you want to team up and go find this bug? across of all of GitHub because quite frankly, there were so many of these vulnerabilities that I couldn't find, report, and operate on them myself. So we decided to pull someone in and, and find this at scale before GitHub, say, closed this Vuln von- class off. And quite frankly, I'm surprised it's still an option. I honestly thought they would close it off within a couple months, but but you know, here we are. So <laughs> essentially, PyTorch was an operation that 
John conducted, and that was the same vulnerability class with, with fixing a typo and then getting on a self-hosted runner. And that one was pretty scary because during that, John was actually able to steal a personal access token belonging to uh, the PyTorch organization. And that had access to private repos. It could modify code directly. Like it's, And that's where the, the, that lateral movement risk is so high, where it's not just a runner. It's like once you steal a secret, now you can use that to to do more uh, supply chain attacks. Yeah. Wow. All right, Adnan, uh, thank you so much for coming back to join us on the podcast. Uh, super interesting research. Would love to talk to you more as, as you guys go farther down this uh, rabbit hole. Awesome. Again, and thanks, Chris, for having me. Yeah. Take care, sir. All right. Likewise. Bye. And that concludes this episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.